0: Hey, hey everybody, I'm Dave, and I'm Rue, and welcome to So Many Books,
1: So Little Time.
0: Today we will be continuing our read of 1984 by George Orwell with Chapter 8, I believe.
1: Yes, yes we are.
0: Cue the music! Music <laughs> How are you going?
1: I'm um, okay. Just might be a bit husky today. We're pretty good.
0: Husky, does that mean you're going to go...
1: No, no, just...
0: Oh, that could have added yeah. some much-needed levity to the proceedings. No,
1: I have a bad feeling this book is just going to get darker and darker and darker.
0: <laughs> Trust that feeling. Uh... It, it, won't, it won't lead you wrong, I'll <laughs> tell you that. Much.
1: And given the fact that... Uh, anyway, just yuck news, yuck Anyway, 1984, it's a big-time parallel towards past events and present, and it shouldn't be.
0: And hopefully not future.
1: And hopefully not future, no.
0: But we have it, and it's always good to be able to return to it and understand it.
1: Sorry. Um, Yeah, and um, I've been kind of using it as a bit of a conversational thing now, where I'm like, Have you read 1984? If you haven't, you might want to, because right now you sound like a person who is totally in 1984.
0: Just just don't go too far, because I'm jokingly here. Have you read 1984? Well, I haven't fully, but I've read seven chapters of it. (laughs) I think I know what I'm talking about.
1: I think I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) You sound like the kind of person Winston would like.
0: (laughs) Blah, 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 blah,
1: blah. Or Winston knows he's going to die one day.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well
1: Winston knows you'll be safe
0: oh oh! I, I've got a question just... and actually it leads into our recap uh last chapter no last chapter was different sorry I'm editing two episodes ago as we record this so I'm thinking about uh Winston talking about his wife Catherine yeah uh, but last chapter if I'm uh two
1: plus two equals four and the freedom to say so
0: right right okay um Sorry, my cogs are just turning remembering what chapter was about. Uh,
1: the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final most essential command. Sounds a little bit like a verbatim quote of what we've heard recently.
0: Yeah, it was um now most of that chapter was Winston still writing, right? He was thinking through things.
1: Yeah, he was writing and he was reflecting on on the philosophy of of the party in a, in a sense. And the fact that he had seen evidence where the party the, had contradicted itself.
0: The evidence, that's right. It was about the evidence when he had uh, seen the three uh, party members who had been denounced by the party having lunch at the, I think it was the Fig Tree Cafe.
1: Yeah, which was in their... Um, yeah, and he and he was looking at a picture, and he's going, 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 looking at the picture that shows that they were actually working with their um, at, at the capital of, um, was it the capital?
0: Uh, no, it was something about how uh, when they denounced themselves, Winston had proof that the what they said was untrue.
1: Yeah, because they said they were on the the soil of Eurasia at the yeah, time. And they were
0: fighting East they Asia. Weren't,
1: but they weren't. They were actually on in, oh, true, in true. Oceania. They were actually in um I think New York or something.
0: Yeah, they were be it was that big denouncement speech. Uh,
1: yeah. So it made absolutely no sense. There was evidence completely contradicting it. But as we know, the party controls the past and therefore it controls the present and potentially the future.
0: And I get the feeling most people, if confronted with that information, would have just kinda of gone, eh
1: well, no, he was saying that this would have completely destroyed Big Brother because these were founding members. So if, if Big Brother is lying about the fellow yes. party members that started the party.
0: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, so the question I wanted to ask, thinking that it was the last chapter, but remember Catherine? Yes. I wanted to ask you if you think she's alive or not. Probably. Okay.
1: She's probably out there. I like, mean, she, she's left. Oh, wait, she can't be married, and she wanted to have a child because that's her duty to the party, isn't mm-hmm. it?
0: But there's no such thing as divorce, as far as I know.
1: No, they don't, they don't have divorce, so she would have just... What would have happened to her? That's a good question.
0: Maybe she... Um... Maybe she got impregnated by another party member. Who knows? I mean, they don't really care about the idea of family, so...
1: No, they don't. But they also don't care where she's... She is right. Like, there's nothing important. There's nothing of import to her, so to speak. Mm. It, it's
0: just one of those things, you know, that plays in my mind. Like, when I talked about, ooh, I wonder what part of the world Oceania is actually the yeah. part of, you know, what constitutes it. Just those little details I like in my head filling out. Mm,
1: What's this sense. person
0: doing? So, uh, shall we start? Yes. yes. Chapter 1 8. From somewhere at the bottom of a passage, the smell of roasting coffee, real coffee, not victory coffee, came floating out into the street. Winston paused involuntarily. For perhaps two seconds, he was back in the half-forgotten world of his childhood. Then a door banged, seeming to cut off the smell as abruptly as though it had been a sound. He had walked several kilometers over pavements, and his varicose ulcer was throbbing. This was the second time in three weeks that he had missed an evening at the community center, a rash act, since you could be certain that the number of your attendances at the center was carefully checked. In principle, a party member had no spare time, and was never alone except in bed. It was assumed that when he was not working, eating, or sleeping, he would be taking part in some sort of communal recreation. To do anything that suggested a taste for solitude, even to go for a walk by yourself, was always slightly dangerous. There was a word for it in Newspeak, own life. It was called, meaning individualism and eccentricity. But this evening, as he came out of the ministry, the balminess of the April air had tempted him. The sky was a warmer blue than he had seen it that year, and suddenly the long noisy evening at the center, the boring, exhausting games, the lectures, the creaking camaraderie oiled by gin had seemed intolerable. On impulse, he had turned away from the bus stop and wandered off into the labyrinth of London, first south, then east, then north again, losing himself among unknown streets and hardly bothering in which direction he was going. If there is hope he had written in the diary, it lies in the proles. The words kept coming back to him, statement of a mystical truth and a palpable absurdity. He was somewhere in the vague brown-colored slums to the north, and east of what had once been St. Pancras Station. He was walking up a cobbled street of little two-story houses with battered doorways, which gave straight on the pavement, and which were somehow curiously suggestive of rat holes. There were puddles of filthy water here and there among the cobbles. In and out of the dark doorways, and down narrow alleyways that branched off on either side, people swarmed in astonishing numbers. Girls in full bloom, with crudely lipsticked mouths, and youths, who chased the girls, and swollen, waddling women, who showed you what the girls would be like in ten years' time, and old bent creatures shuffling along on splayed feet, and ragged, barefooted children who played in the puddles, and then scattered at angry yells from their mothers. Perhaps a quarter of the windows in the street were broken and boarded up. Most of the people paid no attention to Winston. A few eyed him with a sort of guarded curiosity, Two monstrous women with brick red forearms folded across their aprons were talking outside a doorway. Winston caught scraps of conversation as he approached. Yes, I says to her, that's all very well, I says, but if you'd have been in my place, you'd have done the same as what I done. It's easy to criticize, I says, but you ain't got the same problems as what I got. Ah, said the other, that's just it, that's just where it is. The strident voices stopped abruptly. The women studied him in hostile silence as he went past. But it was not hostility, exactly, merely a kind of wariness, a momentary stiffening as at the passing of some unfamiliar animal. The blue overalls of the party could not be a common sight in a street like this. Indeed, it was unwise to be seen in such places, unless you had definite business there. The patrols might stop you if you happened to run into them. May I see your papers, comrade? What are you doing here? What time did you leave work? Is this your usual way home? and so on and so forth. Not that there was any rule against walking home by an unusual route, but it was enough to draw attention to you if the thought police heard about it. Suddenly the whole street was in commotion. There were yells of warning from all sides. People were shooting into the doorways like rabbits. A young woman leapt out of a doorway a little ahead of Winston, grabbed up a tiny child playing in a puddle, whipped her apron round it, and leapt back again all in one movement. At the same instant, a man in a concertina-like black suit who had emerged from a side alley ran towards Winston, pointing excitedly to the sky. Steamer, he yelled. Look out, Governor. Bang overhead. Lay down quick. Steamer was a nickname which, for some reason, the proles applied to rocket bombs. Winston promptly flung himself on his face. The proles were nearly always right when they gave you a warning of this kind. They seemed to possess some kind of instinct which told them several seconds in advance when a rocket was coming although the rocket supposedly traveled faster than sound winston clasped his forearms above his head there was a roar that seemed to make the pavement heave a shower of light objects pattered onto his back when he stood up he found that he was covered with fragments of glass from the nearest window he walked on the bomb had demolished a group of houses two hundred meters up the street a black plume of smoke hung in the air and below it a cloud of plaster dust in which a crowd was already forming around the ruins. There was a little pile of plaster lying on the pavement ahead of him, and in the middle of it he could see a bright red streak. When he got up to it, he saw that it was a human hand severed at the wrist. Apart from the bloody stump, the hand was so completely whitened as to resemble a plaster cast. He kicked the thing into the gutter, and then, to avoid the crowd, turned down a side street to the right, within three or four minutes he was out of the area which the bomb had affected, and the sordid swarming life of the streets was going on as though nothing had happened. It was nearly twenty hours, and the drinking shops which the Pearls frequented, pubs they called them, were choked with customers. From their grimy swing doors, endlessly opening and shutting, there came forth a smell of urine, sawdust, and sour beer. In an angle formed by a projecting house front, three men were standing very close together the middle one of them holding a folded-up newspaper which the other two were studying over his shoulder. Even before he was near enough to make up the expression on their faces, Winston could see absorption in every line of their bodies. It was obviously some serious piece of news that they were reading. He was a few paces away from them when suddenly the group broke up and two of the men were in violent altercation. For a moment they seemed almost on the point of blows. Can't you bleeding well listen to what I say? I tell you, no number ending in seven ain't one for over fourteen months. Yes, it has Then, No, it has not. That oh, I got the old lot of em for over two years wrote down on a piece of paper. I ticked em down regular as the clock. And I tell you, no number ending in seven. Yes, a seven has one. I could pretty near tell you the bleeding number. Four oh seven. It ended in, it were in February. Second week in February. February your grandmother. I got it all down in black and white. And I tell you, no number oh pack it in said the third man they were talking about the lottery winston looked back when he had gone thirty meters they were still arguing with vivid passionate faces the lottery with its weekly payout of enormous prizes was the one public event to which the proles paid serious attention it was probable that there were some millions of proles for whom the lottery was the principal if not the only reason for remaining alive it was their delight their folly their anodyne their intellectual stimulant. Where the lottery was concerned, even people who could barely read and write seemed capable of intricate calculations and staggering feats of memory. There was a whole tribe of men who made a living simply by selling systems, forecasts, and lucky amulets. Winston had nothing to do with the running of the lottery which was managed by the Ministry of Plenty, but he was aware, indeed everyone in the party was aware, that the prizes were largely imaginary. Only small sums were actually paid out. The winners of the big prizes being non-existent persons. In the absence of any real intercommunication between one part of Oceania and another, this was not difficult to arrange. Mm -hmm. But if there was hope, it lay in the proles. You had to cling on to that. When you put it in words, it sounded reasonable. It was when you looked at the human beings passing you on the pavement that it became an act of faith. The street into which he had turned ran downhill. He had a feeling that he had been in this neighborhood before, and that there was a main thoroughfare not far away. From somewhere ahead, there came a din of shouting voices. The street took a sharp turn, and then ended in a flight of steps, which led down to a sunken alley where a few stall keepers were selling tired-looking vegetables. At this moment, Winston remembered where he was. The alley led out into the main street, and down the next turning not five minutes away was the junk shop where he had bought the blank book which was now his diary and in a small stationer's shop not far away he had bought his pen holder and his bottle of ink he paused for a moment at the top of the steps on the opposite side of the alley there was a dingy little pub whose windows appeared to be frosted over but in reality were merely coated with dust a very old man bent but active with white mustaches that pressed forward like those of a prawn pushed open the swing door and went in. As Winston stood washing, it occurred to him that the old man, who must be 80 at the least, had already been middle-aged when the revolution happened. He and a few others like him were the last links that now existed with the vanished world of capitalism. In the party itself there were not many people left whose ideas had been formed before the revolution. The older generation had mostly been wiped out in the great purges of the 50s and 60s, and the few who survived had long ago been terrified into complete intellectual surrender. If there was anyone still alive who could give you a truthful account of conditions in the early part of the century, it could only be a brawl. Suddenly the passage from the history book that he had copied into his diary came back into Winston's mind, and a lunatic impulse took hold of him. He would go into the pub, he would scrape acquaintance with that old man and question him. He would say to him, tell me about your life when you were a boy, what was it like in those days? Were things better than they are now, or were they worse? Hurriedly. Oh
1: dear, I don't, mm, yep.
0: Not a good idea?
1: No, because, oh.
0: <laughs> hey guys, I'm a party member. <laughs> yeah.
1: They never see you, but now they're going to see you and you're asking questions. In Whoa. your in
0: your blue overalls.
1: Yeah, maybe be incognito at least, but no. <laughs> no. No. No.
0: <laughs> Winston puts on a little mustache.
1: Yes, then it's all bad. Oh, wait.
0: <laughs> Surely, lest he should have time to become frightened, he descended the steps and crossed the narrow street. It was madness, of course. As usual, there was no definite rule against talking to proles and frequenting their pubs, but it was far too unusual an action to pass unnoticed. If the patrols appeared, he might plead an attack of faintness, but it was not likely that they would believe him. He pushed open the door, and a hideous cheesy smell of sour beer hit him in the face. As he entered, the din of voices dropped to about half its volume. Behind his back, he could feel everyone eyeing his blue overalls. A game of darts which was going on at the other end of the room interrupted itself for perhaps as much as thirty seconds. The old man whom he had followed was standing at the bar having some kind of altercation with the barman. A large, stout, hook-nosed young man with enormous forearms. A knot of others, standing round with glasses in their hands, were watching the scene. "'I arst you civil enough, didn't I?' said the old man, straightening his shoulders pugnaciously. You telling me you ain't got a pint mug in the old bleeding boozer? And "'What in hell's name is a pint?' said the barman, leaning forward with the tips of his fingers on the counter. "'Archidem calls himself a barman and don't know what a pint is. Why, a pint's the half of a quart. There's four quarts to the gallon. Have to teach the ABC next. Never heard of him, said the barman shortly. Liter and half-liter. That's all we serve. There's the glasses on the shelf in front of you. I likes a pint, persisted the old man. You could have drawed me off a pint easy enough. We didn't have these bleeding leaders when I was a young man. When you were a young man, we were all living in the treetops, said the barman, with a glance at the other customers. There was a shout of laughter, and the uneasiness caused by Winston's entry seemed to disappear. The old man's white stubbled face had flushed pink. He turned away, muttering to himself, and bumped into Winston. Winston caught him gently by the arm. May I offer you a drink, he said. You're a gent, said the other, straightening his shoulders again. He appeared not to have noticed Winston's blue overalls. Pint, he added aggressively to the barman. Pint of a wallop! The barman swished two half-liters of dark brown beer into thick glasses, which he had rinsed in a bucket under the counter. Beer was the only drink you could get in prole pubs. The proles were supposed not to drink gin, though in practice they could get hold of it easily enough. The game of darts was in full swing again, and the knot of men at the bar had begun talking about lottery tickets. Winston's presence was forgotten for a moment. There was a deal table under the window where he and the old man could talk without fear of being overheard. It was horribly dangerous, but at any rate, there was no telescreen in the room, a point he had made sure of as soon as he came in. He could have drawed me off a pint, grumbled the old man as he settled down behind a glass. A half liter ain't enough. It don't satisfy. An old liter's too much. It starts my bladder running, let alone the price. You must have seen great changes since you were a young man, said Winston tentatively. Yeah. <laughs> subtle. Subtle. Super subtle the old man's pale blue eyes moved from the darts board to the bar and from the bar to the door of the gents as though it were in the bar-room that he expected the changes to have occurred the beer was better he said finally and cheaper when i was a young man mild beer wallop we used to call it was four pence a pint that was before the war of course which war was that said winston it's all wars said the old man vaguely he took up his glass and his shoulders straightened again here's wishing you the very best of alf In his lean throat, the sharp-pointed Adam's apple made a surprisingly rapid up-and-down movement, and the beer vanished. Winston went to the bar and came back with two more half-liters. The old man appeared to have forgotten his prejudice against drinking a full liter. (laughs) You are very much older than I am, said Winston. You must have been a grown man before I was born. You can remember what it was like in the old days, before the Revolution. People of my age don't really know anything about those times. We can only read about them in books, and what it says in the books may not be true. I should like your opinion on that.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh. Subtle. Subtle like a bus.
0: Please tell me wh- what life was like before the party. Uh, the history books say that life before the revolution was completely different from what it is now. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> the next line. There was the most terrible oppression, injustice, poverty, worse than anything we can imagine. Here in London, the great mass of the people never had enough to eat from birth to death. Half of them hadn't even boots on their feet. They worked 12 hours a day. They left school at 9. They slept 10 in a room.
1: Question, considering they struggle with boots, do they really want to be pointing out boots as an example?
0: I think everyone has boots on the mind. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's a boot economy.
1: Oh, God, yes. It's a bit of a, yeah. It's because the
0: party's full of heels, of course. Mm, yeah. And, of course, the party has no soul.
1: No, 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 no. They have to toe the line.
0: The, they're arch villains. Oh,
1: God. Yeah, next, next, next. <laughs> okay, okay. A, a few times. Okay, there we go. At,
0: and at the same time, there were a very few people, only a few thousands, the capitalists they were called, who were rich and powerful. They owned everything that there was to own. They lived in great, gorgeous houses with 30 servants. They rode about in motor cars and four-horse carriages. They drank champagne. They wore top hats. The the old man brightened suddenly. Top hats, he said. Funny you should mention them. The same thing came into my head only yesterday. I don't know why. I was just thinking. I ain't seen a top hat in years. Gorn right out they have. The last one, the last time I wore one was at my sister-in-law's funeral. And that was, well, I couldn't give you the date. But it must have been 50 years ago. Of course it was only ired for the occasion, you understand. It isn't very important about the top hats, said Winston patiently. The point is, these capitalists, they and a few lawyers and priests and so forth who lived on them, were the lords of the earth. Everything existed for their benefit. You, the ordinary people, the workers, were their slaves. They could do what they liked with you. They could ship you off to Canada like cattle. They could sleep with your daughters if they chose. They could order you to be flogged with something called a cat nine tails You had to take your cap off when you passed them every capitalist went about with a gang of lackeys who the old man brightened again lackeys he said now there's a word i ain't heard since ever so long lackeys that regular takes me back that does i recollect oh donkeys years ago i used to sometimes go to Ide park of a sunday afternoon to hear the blokes making speeches salvation army roman catholics jews indians all sorts there was there was one bloke, well, I couldn't give you his name, but a real powerful speaker he was. He didn't aft give it to him. Laggies, he says. Laggies of the bourgeoisie. flunkies of the ruling class. Parasites. That was another of them. And Aienas. He definitely called them hyenas, Of course, he was referring to the Labour Party, you understand. Winston had the feeling that they were talking at cross purposes. What I really wanted to know was this, he said. Do you feel that you have more freedom now than you had in those days? Are you treated more like a human being? In the old days, the rich people, the people at the top, the house of lords, put in the old man reminiscently. The house of lords, if you like. What I am asking is, were these people able to treat you as an inferior simply because they were rich and you were poor? Is it a fact, for instance, that you had to call them sir and take off your cap when you passed them? The old man appeared to think deeply. He drank off about a quarter of his beer before answering. Yes, he said. They liked you to touch your cap to em, It showed respect, like. I didn't agree with it myself, but I done it often enough. I do, as you might say. And was it usual, I'm only quoting what I've read in history books, was it usual for these people and their servants to push you off the pavement into the gutter? One of them pushed me once, said the old man. I recollected as if it was yesterday. It was boat race night. Terribly rowdy they used to get on boat race night. And I bumped into a young bloke on Shaftesbury Avenue quite a gent he was, dress shirt, top hat, black overcoat. He was kind of zigzagging across the pavement. I bumps into him, accidental-like, he says. Why can't you look where you're going, he says. I say, do you think you blot the pleading pavement? He says, I'll twist your bloody off if you get fresh with me. I says, you're drunk. I'll give you in charge in a half a minute, I says, and if you'll believe me, he puts his hand on my chest and gives me a shove as pretty near sent me under the wheels of a bus.' Well, I was young in them days, and I was going to have fetched him one only. A sense of helplessness took hold of Winston. The old man's memory was nothing but a rubbish heap of details. One could question him all day without getting any real information. The party histories might still be true after a fashion. They might even be completely true. He made a last attempt. Perhaps I have not made myself clear, he said. What I am trying to say is this. You have been alive a very long time. You lived half your life before the revolution. In 1925, for instance, you were already grown up. Would you say, from what you can remember, that life in 1925 was better than it is now, or worse? If you could choose, would you prefer to live then, or now? The old man looked meditatively at the darts board. He finished up his beer, more slowly than before. When he spoke, it was with a tolerant philosophical air, as though the beer had mellowed him. I know what you expect me to say, he said. You expect me to say as I'd sooner be young again. Most people'd say they'd sooner be young if you arst them. You got your health and strength when you're young. When you get to my time of life, you ain't never well. I suffer something wicked from my feet, and my bladder's just terrible. Six and seven times a night, it has me out of bed. On the other end, there's great advantages in being an old man. You ain't got the same worries. No truck with women, and that's a great thing. I ain't had a woman for near on thirty year, if you'd credit it. Nor wanted to, what's more. Winston sat back against the window sill. It was no use going on. He was about to buy some more beer when the old man suddenly got up and shuffled rapidly into the staking urinal at the side of the room. The extra half leader was already working on him. Winston sat for a minute or two gazing at his empty glass and hardly noticed when his feet carried him into the street again. Within twenty years at the most, he reflected, the huge and simple question was life better before the revolution than it is now? would have ceased once and for all to be answerable, but in effect it was unanswerable even now, since the few scattered survivors from the ancient world were incapable of comparing one age with another. They remembered a million useless things, a quarrel with a workmate, a hunt for a lost bicycle pump, the expression on a long dead sister's face, the swirls of dust on a windy morning 70 years ago, but all the relevant facts were outside the range of their vision. They were like the ant, which can see small objects, but not large ones, and when memory failed and written records were falsified, when that happened, the claim of the party to have improved the conditions of human life had got to be accepted. Because there did not exist, never again could exist, any standard against which it could be tested."
1: Well, if you think about it, they've got lack of access to education, they're being fed a whole bunch of crap, so to speak. Mm and they're being systematically just uh it? everything they've kept only the ones who are of least uh quote unquote intellectual value
0: oh yeah yeah because anyone gets too above their station the yeah. uh police take them out
1: yeah they're, they're gone because they, they think too much they, they they might question the whole system and
0: yeah. plus they get they keep the population subdued with Beer, the lottery, and the sex and
1: pornography. Yep. So really, and also lack of supplies that they squabble over. And yeah. she, the the di- dialogue between the two women. Oh, you don't know what my life is like, and no one can compare between my life and your life. And never, never, no one knows what I'm suffering.
0: Petty squabbles.
1: Everyone is about their own thing. They're all very yeah. self focused, self centered, as opposed to community focused, community centered. There's no sense of community.
0: And the fear also of the bombs.
1: Yeah. The bombs just keep them. Yeah. Life is short and done.
0: And there's almost um, there's no reason to care about anyone else.
1: Yeah. All of it is just let's just survive. Mm -hmm. Let's exist. Let's survive. Yeah. It's not great. They're they're too busy distracted like in terms of survival.
0: Yeah. At this moment his train of thought stopped abruptly. He halted and looked up. He was in a narrow street with a few dark little shops interspersed among dwelling houses. Immediately above his head there hung three discoloured metal balls which looked as if they had once been gilded. He seemed to know the place. Of course, he was standing outside the junk shop where he had bought the diary. A twinge of fear went through him. It had been a sufficiently rash act to buy the book in the beginning and he had sworn never to come near the place again, and yet the instant that he allowed his thoughts to wander, his feet had brought him back here of their own accord. It was precisely against suicidal impulses of this kind that he had hoped to guard himself by opening the diary. At the same time, he noticed that although it was nearly twenty-one hours, the shop was still open. With the feeling that he would be less conspicuous inside than hanging about on the pavement, he stepped through the doorway. If questioned, he could plausibly say that he was trying to buy razor blades. The proprietor had just lighted a hanging oil lamp which gave off an unclean but friendly smell. He was a man of perhaps sixty, frail and bowed, with a long benevolent nose and mild eyes distorted by thick spectacles. His hair was almost white, but his eyebrows were bushy and still black. His spectacles, his gentle fuzzy movements, and the fact that he was wearing an aged jacket of black velvet gave him a vague air of intellectuality, as though he had been some kind of literary man, or perhaps a musician.
1: Just saying, he's got a slightly big nose, he's got glasses. Is this Goldstein? (laughs) That's my head just going, Goldstein?
0: Dun, dun, dun!
1: dun. dun. (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) What a twist! What a twist. Goldstein sold Winston the Diary. It all connects. Ah.
1: No, but yeah, that
0: would have be been funny. But <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, uh, where are we? Oh, yes. Uh, his voice was soft as though faded, and his accent less debased than that of the majority of proles. I recognized you on the pavement, he said immediately. You're the gentleman that bought the young lady's keepsake album. That was a beautiful bit of paper that was cream-laid, it used to be called. There's been no paper like that made for, oh, I dare say, fifty years. He peered at Winston over the top of his spectacles. Is there anything special I can do for you, or did you just want to look round? I was passing, said Winston vaguely. I just looked in. I didn't want anything in particular. It's just as well, said the other, because I don't suppose I could have satisfied you. He made an apologetic gesture with his soft-palmed hand. You see how it is. An empty shop, you might say. Between you and me, the antique trade's just about finished. No demand any longer, and no stock either. Furniture, china, glass, it's all been broken up by degrees, and of course the metal stuff's mostly been melted down. I haven't seen a brass candlestick in years. The tiny interior of the shop was in fact uncomfortably full, but there was almost nothing in it of the slightest value. The floor space was very restricted, because all round the walls were stacked innumerable dusty picture frames. In the window, there were trays of nuts and bolts, worn-out chisels, penknives with broken blades, tarnished watches that did not even pretend to be in going order, and other miscellaneous rubbish. Only on a small table in the corner was there a litter of odds and ends, lacquered snuff boxes, agate brooches, and the like, which looked as though they might include something interesting. As Winston wandered towards the table, his eye was caught by a round smooth thing that gleamed softly in the lamplight, and he picked it up. It was a heavy lump of glass, curved on one side, flat on the other, making almost a hemisphere. There was a peculiar softness, as of rainwater, in both the color and the texture of the glass. At the heart of it, magnified by the curved surface, there was a strange pink convoluted object that recalled a rose or a sea anemone. What is it? said Winston, fascinated. That's coral, that is, said the old man. It must have come from the Indian Ocean. They used to kind of embed it in the glass. That wasn't made less than a hundred years ago, more by the look of it. It's a beautiful thing, said Winston. It is a beautiful thing, said the other appreciatively. But there's not many that say so nowadays. He coughed. Now, if it so happened that you wanted to buy it, that'd cost you four dollars. I can remember when a thing like that would have fetched eight pounds, and eight pounds was, well, I can't work it out, but it was a lot of money. But who cares about genuine antiques nowadays, even the few that's left? Winston immediately paid over the four dollars and slid the coveted thing into his pocket. What appealed to him about it was not so much its beauty as the air it seemed to possess of belonging to an age quite different from the present one. The soft, rain-watery glass was not like any glass that he had ever seen. The thing was doubly attractive because of its apparent uselessness, though he could guess that it must once have been intended as a paperweight. It was very heavy in his pocket, but fortunately it did not make much of a bulge. It was a queer thing, even a compromising thing, for a party member to have in his possession. Anything old, and for that matter anything beautiful, was always vaguely suspect. The old man had grown noticeably more cheerful after receiving the four dollars. Winston realized that he would have accepted three or even two. There's another room upstairs that you might care to take a look at, he said. There's not much in it, just a few pieces. We'll do with a light if we're going upstairs. He lit another lamp, and with bowed back, led the way slowly up the steep and worn stairs and along a tiny passage, into a room which did not give on the street, but looked out on a cobbled yard and a forest of chimney-pots. Winston noticed that the furniture was still arranged as though the room were meant to be lived in. There was a strip of carpet on the floor, a picture or two on the walls, and a deep slatternly armchair drawn up to the fireplace. An old-fashioned glass clock with a twelve-hour face was ticking away on the mantelpiece. Under the window, and occupying nearly a quarter of the room, was an enormous bed with a mattress still on it. We lived here till my wife died, said the old man half-apologetically. I'm selling the furniture off by little and little. Now that's a beautiful mahogany bed, or at least it would be if you could get the bugs out of it, but I dare say you'd find it a little bit cumbersome. He was holding the lamp high up so as to illuminate the whole room, and in the warm dim light the place looked curiously inviting. The thought flitted through Winston's mind that it would probably be quite easy to rent the room for a few dollars a week if he dared to take the risk. It was a wild impossible notion to be abandoned as soon as thought of, but the room had awakened in him a sort of nostalgia, a sort of ancestral memory. It seemed to him that he knew exactly what it felt like to sit in a room like this, in an armchair beside an open fire with your feet in the fender and a kettle on the hop utterly alone utterly secure with nobody watching you no voice pursuing you no sound except the singing of the kettle and the friendly ticking of the clock there's no telescreen he could not help murmuring ah said the old man i never had one of those things too expensive and i never seemed to feel the need of it somehow now that's a nice gate-like table in the corner there Of course, you'd have to put new hinges on it if you wanted to use the flaps. There was a small bookcase in the other corner, and Winston had already gravitated towards it. It contained nothing but rubbish. The hunting down and destruction of books had been done with the same thoroughness in the Pearl quarters as everywhere else. It was very unlikely that there existed anywhere in Oceania a copy of a book printed earlier than nineteen sixty. The old man still carrying the lamp was standing in front of a picture in a rosewood frame which hung up on the other side of the fireplace opposite the bed now if you happen to be interested in old prints at all he began delicately winston came across to examine the picture it was a steel engraving of an oval building with rectangular windows and a small tower in front there was a railing running round the building and at the rear end there was what appeared to be a statue winston gazed at it for some moments It seemed vaguely familiar, though he did not remember the statue. The frame's fixed to the wall, said the old man, but I could unscrew it for you, I dare say. I know that building, said Winston finally. It's a ruin now, but it's in the middle of the street, outside the Palace of Justice. That's right, outside the law courts. It was bombed in, no, so many years ago. It was a church at one time. St. Clement Dane's, its name was. He smiled apologetically, as though conscious of saying something slightly ridiculous, and added... Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clements. What's that, said Winston? Oh, oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clements. That was a rhyme we had when I was a little boy. How it goes on, I don't remember, but I do know it ended up. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. It was a kind of a dance. They held out their arms for you to pass under, and when they came to, here comes a chopper to chop off your head, they brought their arms down and caught you. It was just names of churches. All the London churches were in it, all the principal ones, that is. Winston wondered vaguely to what century the church belonged. It was always difficult to determine the age of a London building. Anything large and impressive, if it was reasonably new in appearance, was automatically claimed as having been built since the Revolution. Of course. Yes. <laughs> well, everything was built after the Revolution.
1: Oh a big brother, yes.
0: Yeah. The centuries of capitalism were held to have produced nothing of any value, one could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books. Statues, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of the streets, anything that might throw light upon the past had been systematically altered. I never knew it had been a church, he said. There's a lot of them left, really, said the old man, but they've been put to other uses. Now how did that rhyme go? Ha! I've got it. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clement's. You owe me three farlings, say the bells of St. Martin's. There, now that's as far as I can get. A farthing. That was a small copper coin. Looks something like a cent. Where was St. Martin's? Said Winston. St. Martin's? That's still standing. It's in Victory Square, alongside the picture gallery. A building with a kind of triangular porch and pillars in front, and a big flight of steps. Winston knew the place well. It was a museum used for propaganda displays of various kinds. Scale models of rocket bombs and floating fortresses. Waxwork tableau illustrating enemy atrocities, and the like. St. Martin's in the Fields, it used to be called, supplemented the old man, though I don't recollect any fields anywhere in those parts. Winston did not buy the picture. It would have been an even more incongruous possession than the glass paperweight, and impossible to carry home, unless it were taken out of its frame. But he lingered for some minutes more, talking to the old man, whose name he discovered, was not weeks, as one might have gathered from the inscription over the shop front but Charrington, Mr. Charrington, it seemed, was a widower aged sixty-three, and had inhabited the shop for thirty years. Throughout that time he had been intending to alter the name over the window, but had never quite got to the point of doing it. All the while that they were talking, the half-remembered rhyme kept running through Winston's head. Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clement's. You owe me three farlings say the bells of St. Martin's. It was curious, but when you said it to yourself, you had the illusion of actually hearing bells the bells of a lost london that still existed somewhere or other disguised and forgotten from one ghostly steeple after another he seemed to hear them pealing forth yet so far as he could remember he had never in real life heard church bells ringing he got away from mr Charrington and went down the stairs alone so as not to let the old man see him reconnoiting the street before stepping out of the door he had already made up his mind that after a suitable interval a month say he would take the risk of visiting the shop again. It was perhaps not more dangerous than shirking an evening at the center. The serious piece of folly had been to come back here in the first place, after buying the diary, and without knowing whether the proprietor of the shop could be trusted. However, yes, he thought again, he would come back. He would buy further scraps of beautiful rubbish. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) One man's trash is another man's treasure. Mm -hmm. He would buy the engraving of St. Clement Danes, take it out of its frame, and carry it home concealed under the jacket of his overalls. He would drag the rest of that poem out of Mr. Charrington's memory. Even the lunatic project of renting the room upstairs flashed momentarily through his mind again. For perhaps five seconds exultation made him careless, and he stepped out onto the pavement without so much as a preliminary glance through the window. He had even started humming to an improvised tune. Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clements. You owe me three farthings, say the... Suddenly, his heart seemed to turn to ice and his bowels to water. A figure in blue overalls was coming down the pavement, not ten meters away. It was the girl from the fiction department. The girl with dark hair. The light was failing, but there was no difficulty in recognizing her. She looked him straight in the face, then walked quickly on as though she had not seen him. For a few seconds Winston was too paralyzed to move. Then he turned to the right and walked heavily away, not noticing for the moment that he was going in the wrong direction. At any rate, one question was settled. There was no doubting any longer that the girl was spying on him. She must have followed him here, because it was not credible that by pure chance she should have happened to be walking on the same evening up the same obscure back street, kilometers distant from any quarter where party members lived. It was too great a coincidence. Whether she was really an agent of the thought police, or simply an amateur spy actuated by officiousness, hardly mattered. It was enough that she was watching him. Probably she had seen him go into the pub as well. It was an effort to walk. The lump of glass in his pocket banged against his thigh at each step. And he was half-minded to take it out and throw it away. The worst thing was the pain in his belly. For a couple of minutes, he had the feeling that he would die if he did not reach a laboratory soon but there was no public lavatories in a quarter like this. Then the spasm passed, leaving a dull ache behind. The street was a blind alley. Winston halted, stood for several seconds wondering vaguely what to do, then turned round and began to retrace his steps. As he turned, it occurred to him that the girl had only passed him three minutes ago, and that by running he could probably catch up with her. He could keep on his track till they were in some quiet place and then smash her skull in with a cobblestone. The piece of glass in his pocket would be heavy enough for the job. But he abandoned the idea immediately, because even the thought of making any physical effort was unbearable. He could not run, he could not strike a blow, besides she would yawn and lusty and would defend herself. He thought also of hurrying to the community center and staying there till the place closed, so as to establish a partial alibi for the evening. But that too was impossible. A deadly lassitude had taken hold of him. All he wanted was to get home quickly and then sit down and be quiet. It was after twenty two hours when he got back to the flat. The lights would be switched off main at twenty three thirty. He went into the kitchen and swallowed nearly a teacupful of victory gin. Then he went to the table in the alcove, sat down, and took the diary out of the drawer. But he did not open it at once. From the telescreen, a brassy female voice was squalling a patriotic song. He sat staring at the marbled cover of the book, trying without success to shut the voice out of his consciousness it was at night that they came for you, always at night. The proper thing was to kill yourself before they got you. Undoubtedly, some people did so. Many of the disappearances were actually suicides. But it needed desperate courage to kill yourself in a world where firearms, or any quick and certain poison, were completely unprocurable. He thought with a kind of astonishment of the biological uselessness of pain and fear, the treachery of the human body, which always freezes into inertia at exactly the moment when a special effort is needed. He might have silenced the dark-haired girl, if only he had acted quickly enough, but precisely because of the extremity of his danger, he had lost the power to act. It struck him that in moments of crisis one is never fighting against an external enemy, but always against one's own body. Even now, in spite of the gin, the dull ache in his belly made consecutive thought impossible, And it is the same he perceived in all seemingly heroic or tragic situations, on the battlefield, in the torture chamber, on a sinking ship. The issues that you are fighting for are always forgotten, because the body swells up until it fills the universe. And even when you are not paralyzed by fright or screaming with pain, life is a moment to moment struggle against hunger or cold or sleeplessness, against a sour stomach or an aching tooth. He opened the diary. It was important to write something down. The woman on the telescreen had started a new song. Her voice seemed to stick into his brain like jagged splinters of glass. He tried to think of O'Brien, for whom, or to whom, the diary was written. But instead he began thinking of the things that would happen to him after the thought police took him away. It would not matter if they killed you at once. To be killed was what you expected. But before death, nobody spoke of such things yet everybody knew of them. There was the routine of confession that had to be gone through the groveling on the floor and screaming for mercy, the crack of broken bones, the smashed teeth and bloody clots of hair. Why did you have to endure it, since the end was always the same? Why was it not possible to cut a few days or weeks out of your life? Nobody ever escaped detection, and nobody ever failed to confess. When once you had succumbed to thought crime, it was certain that by a given date you would be dead. Why then did that horror, which altered nothing, have to lie embedded in future time? He tried with a little more success than before to summon up the image of O'Brien. We shall meet in the place where there is no darkness, O'Brien had said to him.
1: I've said this before. Darkness, truth. Mm. Mm. Lies and truth, yep.
0: He knew what it meant or thought he knew. The place where there was no darkness was the imagined future, which one would never see, but which, by foreknowledge, one could mystically share in, but with the voice from the telescreen nagging at his ears, he could not follow the train of thought further. He put a cigarette in his mouth. Half the tobacco promptly fell out onto his tongue, a bitter dust which was difficult to spit out again. The face of Big Brother swam into his mind. Displacing that of O'Brien, just as he had done a few days earlier, he slid a coin out of his pocket and looked at it. The face gazed up at him, heavy, calm, protecting. But what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark moustache? Like a leaden knell, the words came back at him. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Mm. Um. And that, um, at least in my book, is the end of part one.
1: Yeah, I think so too. It's not in my book, but yeah. I'm just kind of exploring and reflecting, kind of going, well, if she's spying on him, which she might well be, given the fact that she's everywhere.
0: Well, you know, there was no reason at all for her to be there.
1: Yeah, so she's likely spying on him. Hmm.
0: I'll I'll interject while you're processing. Yeah. Um. That that seems to be the end of part one. Means that his visit to Pearl Town ha- had some like greater significance to the story. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, go. The pub was bad enough. Like we were laughing about just how blunt and straightforward he was with his questioning.
1: He's just yeah. He's has no subtlety. But then he's, he's given up. He's just at the point of like. It doesn't matter if I'm dead. I might as well be dead. Why do we have to even prolong this?
0: Well, that's what he said at the end. You know, before eventual death, there's always the, the beating you the up, the yeah. Um That's why a lot of people commit suicide when they know that they're going to be taken soon.
1: Yeah. So for him, I think he's kind of going, I think you could probably say that he's suicidal. Yes. And that's yeah. part of why he is just kind of going for it, whether it's because of, the constant pain he, he's commenting on it. it's constant pain it's constant suffering it's just about surviving and it's not enough for him
0: even even um not just the pain but then he said the woman seeing on the telescreen was like jagged splinters of glass mm-hmm. in his brain so you know even with the telescreen bleating all waking hours it's almost impossible to even have a moment he couldn't finish his thought
1: no he he's is i'd say he's just completely and totally Exhausted, And I mean, the German expression is Lebensmüder, which means tired of life, which is what oh. you call someone who is, um, like does something really unwise um, because they, so are, are you tired of life? Like, are, are you, you you're being silly uh, or endangering yourself? He's at that point. I, honestly, I think he embodies the word tired of life. Whatever this thing is, this existence is, it's not a life that he's designed for.
0: Well, it's not a life.
1: No, and I think it's it's also um, significant to note that a lot of people are like people who are his age and older don't really exist that often. He was commenting on it. The oh, big you mean purge. as a
0: party member? Yeah. As party
1: member, and even the proles, people who are older are rare. Right, right. So, as to whether this is just because of the purge to get rid of people who can remember things who are of thing. Or if it's also because, honestly, they're just kind of going, we've seen better, we've known better, why are we...
0: Maybe they, they shuffled off this moral coil themselves, as it were. Yeah,
1: definitely a possibility.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's dark, although he did seem to have some joy talking to Charrington, I think his name was. Yes.
1: Weeks Charrington. I don't know, Charrington, yes, whose name is not Weeks, but he can't be bothered to change it. <laughs> that- After 35 years or something in that shop, he couldn't be bothered to change it, which is kind of telling of the last, actually, that in itself is a piece of evidence for the last 30 years. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm.
0: Yeah, true, true.
1: You are literally just one in the faceless masses. They don't care. And everyone is meant to be focused on their own existence. And that's it. And he isn't. He, he is, but he is.
0: He's, he's got wider thoughts. Yeah. The society of maybe the pearls can save us. If they would just stop talking about all this inane banter. Yeah.
1: But even, um, what's his name, Charrington, he engaged. He actually interacted and was sociable. And you can tell he mourned his wife. So he had a relationship. He had...
0: He, he fondly remembers the past, even the little rhyme. And he yes. goes, oh, a farthing. That was like a cent. We used yes. to use that as money.
1: So he's he still has... The emotional capacity of a human being that hasn't been eroded. Whereas the other guy was...
0: Oh, yeah. He he was drowning in his sorrows and not much was left.
1: Mustache Man had obviously lost it. Yep. Um, but yeah, Charrington...
0: Also... Like, a, I think
1: Mustache Man liked the ideas of the party when it started. And then... Remember the guy who was like, ah... Oh! Lackeys, yeah, bourgeoisie. Yeah. Right, right.
0: That one man he remembered that could have been Big Brother himself.
1: Could have been Big Brother, or it could, could have, have been Goldstein. Goldstein. Yeah, yeah. yeah, could have been all sorts of people that had to do with the founding of the party.
0: Oh, but remember, you said Goldstein is Jerrington. so we'll have to see it <laughs> no, that. that's because huh? he's got a
1: mustache. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's got a big nose and glasses. That's why. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, definitely interesting. And, and
0: he had an air of an intellectual.
1: air of an intellectual without being intellectual.
0: I like how he's an antique dealer and he talks about how there's really no more antiques left. He's like, I haven't seen a candlestick in years because well, they burned metal, yes, They, they melted. melted them all down well, for, it's war. for the uh, resources, as it were.
1: Yeah. Well, he was uh, saying, also what's his name was saying? Um, that's actually one thing that the drunk said that was, the drunk was communicating with him, but he couldn't understand it. That yeah. was the problem. He couldn't follow it.
0: So so if I, I know I read his uh, dialogue a little fast and there was a lot of p- apostrophes before words. So hopefully my fast reading will add to that because it was very difficult to understand.
1: Yeah. Well, no, the fa- I think it's also because there's a language barrier, not just because of the way he speaks, but also that he's using expressions that he can't relate to labor party. No idea. House of Lords, No idea what that is. As a child, he wouldn't have known, mm-hmm. you know. That's not going to mean anything to him. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, a, a new speak um, comes to mind. New speak is about the eradication of language and the previous, and the, his, well, the past. Oh, That's well. exactly what has happened here anyway, because there's a generational shift. So there's mm-hmm. no way to actually relate to what they're talking about. They used other expressions to describe.
0: Which is funny because that seems to always be the, you know, a, a living language shifts so there are always expressions and words that kind of uh ebb and flow at a time and have different meanings of course um in our in our our universe um we have knowledge of our past so words that have changed today we can still go back and go oh but you know 50 years ago they meant this we have records of that
1: that's another thing those those records are determined by what we're meant to have access. See, this is the thing that's a bit scary about even the present is that those who have an interest in the origin of words, and those who have enough of an interest to get, actually look things up, and to get information versus to be told something like they do in, in Big Brother In the history books, they get told. Yeah. The kids' history books tell them this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened, mm. and vaguely sorta. Kind of, but not really. So yes, servants uh, would be, you know, would shove you around. Yes, there were some men who were, when you were fancy, you'd wear a top hat. But the language is missing. Like those who were more wealthy... Or the capitalists or those who were um, priests or um, what's it called um, nobility
0: sorry I'm, I'm having a tough time following because it seemed you were talking about like people today even liking, today liking the the uh the origin of words but then you went into what that no. old guy was no, speaking no, no, no. About. the, the I, way
1: that the old guy was using terminology okay we have this already and we've had this A long time, but we have this that unless someone genuinely wants to um, understand, um, there's an expression, the meaning of what another person is conveying, they're not going to make the effort to look up the meaning of things. So there's certain terms that get used, for example, okay, this is a weird thing the expression literally. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) <laughs>
0: <sighs> <sighs> well, okay. you, well you're getting into like personal grammar bugbears now we all have it's, them it's not
1: a grammar thing though it's no this, no but i, it's I say grammar to yeah, no.
0: encompass but the, language yes, Well, looking
1: at language the meaning of the word and the way it is utilized
0: are literally different
1: are incredibly disparate um or if someone uses the expression um uh research Why don't you research this? Okay, you're not meant to go and plug in information into a search engine and then take the top bit of information. The concept of research and investigation is extremely dilute when it comes to our everyday use of the word. The meaning of research is to actually investigate and to try and look at it. And it doesn't necessarily mean looking at something from multiple different angles in terms of every single angle. It means going and finding what is statistically of significant. um, Well, it's an academic term. It's an academic term, and it's getting used in our everyday language completely incorrectly. You're not, you haven't researched by Googling something. That is not research. (laughs) that is literally literally hey. not research that is i mean it's it's in it's looking into something sure it's looking up something sure but research means you actually have to go out and dig quite a bit right and your personal lived experience that's nice but that's anecdotal evidence still hmm. collect a whole bunch of personal lived experience prove that it's genuine and then publish it And yes, then that contributes to the body of research. And then that's still not the be-all and end-all. The whole point of research is that it is constantly continual search for information, facts, and perspectives on the truth. It evolves. Exactly. It evolves. Our instrument, we we used to think uh, the, was it, the sun, um, the sun, uh, uh, what's it called? We've
0: we've used that example many times in... Yeah. In previous shepherds, yes.
1: Yeah, that we used to think the sun uh, rotated around the Earth. No. We now know that the Earth rotates around the sun, as do the other planets. How? Because we have improved our tools by which we could actually assess the heavenly bodies. I calculated the diameter of the Earth the other day. Sorry, flat earthers, but no. Um, And I could calculate it based on um, a couple of things, and I had about seven pieces of evidence as to why the Earth is round. Why? Sim- and they were simple observations. Had to do with simple observations, simple communication with other people. The way a shadow is cast around different parts of the world. Simple as that. At their, their solar noon. So.
0: Oh, but that's wizards.
1: I know, that's wizards. I'm controlling the sun, apparently. But that's the whole point. There's all this information and all these facts. But again, remember, the party tells us not to trust our own eyes or our ears. So, hey! Yeah.
0: Uh, oh, um, I wanted to ask you. I really don't you, like the party,
1: but yeah.
0: <laughs> um, what did you think of the new speak term "own life"? The idea that to be on your own at any time was suspicious
1: was who, who is was odd.
0: Yes, you was know strange. when Winston's missed too many evenings at the community center, which will be noted.
1: Yes, so in other words. That concept of privacy, or privacy, depending on how you pronounce it, has been completely stripped away. Because, of course not. Because thought crimes, face crimes, all these crimes that could occur because of them monitoring your everything.
0: Well, I I think it's more, uh, what I find more gross is that implicit idea that, like, you, why wouldn't you want to spend all your time around your comrades?
1: Or, no, why wouldn't you want to be dedicating your entire existence to being a cog in the machine of the party? As soon as you are not being a cog in the machine, what are you doing? You're not fulfilling your existence. Hmm. (sighs) So basically, they are lackeys for the party.
0: Lackeys? Lackeys. I remember that word.
1: Lackeys. Lackeys for the bourgeoisie, except it's not the bourgeoisie. It's the lackeys for the, the party. The bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie. Well, technically, has the bourgeoisie really left? Not really. No. They've just changed their name. In fact, that is what the problem is with any extreme system
0: or revolution essentially
1: yeah because you just replace one one figurehead with another figurehead yep. one power controlling group with another power controlling group mm-hmm. we've talked about this before as soon as you have momentum from 15 was it 15 to 20 well it, of
0: the it's 15 it's in this book but we were talking 20, 20 to 30
1: <laughs> it's usually 20 to 30 um but yeah 20 to 30 percent of the population it's all you need and it changes how things are done if you have 20 to 30% of the population encouraging that we embrace our humanity and our empathy and all these wonderful traits that we are capable of, then that slowly influences the educational processes. Whereas right now, this example of our, the party and Big Brother in 1984, they're told to the 15% have basically been convinced to strip away their humanity and the pearls are being treated, Distract. distracted and treated as less than human. So therefore... It's easy to ignore the majority of humans because they're distracted and scattering and sc- whatever.
0: Just trying to live.
1: Squabbling amongst themselves over. It's like a. When I hear the word squabbling, I th- I see chicken. <laughs> like I see chickens fighting amongst themselves in the dust and over a couple of grains or pigeons or you know like like that. Just. <laughs> Sounds more like a turkey, but yes, you know what I mean, like just that. Just silliness and distraction and so focused on survival. Whereas even in uh, the animal kingdom, there's a lot of empathy and um, altruism that's demonstrated. So it's odd. And
0: then then, uh, there is the wars between packs of chimpanzees where they eat each other's faces.
1: Well, yes, that does happen.
0: It runs the gamut.
1: Uh, (laughs) Nature is a bit of a strange beast.
0: (laughs) The gamut of human experience.
1: The human gamut.
0: So uh, that was uh, another episode of So Many Books, So Little Time. If you'd like to get in touch with either of us, I can be reached on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip.
1: I can be communicated with via our Facebook group, which is So Many Books, Comma, So Little Time, also known as at Podcast. Woo! Uh,
0: The music at the... Start of the podcast was Ministry of Love by the Eurythmics, and at the end it will be Iron the Slime by Frank Zappa. So, until next episode, uh,
1: that's that's pretty much it for today. And part two we will resume with our next episode, where mm. chapter
0: chapter nine, part two.
1: Well, part oh, two, it'll probably nine. it'll
0: probably be chapter one again, but it will be chapter nine
1: for us. Chapter nine, chapter nine.
0: <laughs> See you next time, folks. Happy reading.
1: See ya.